Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. As many of our listeners know, the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition and the Society for Critical Care Medicine just released the joint guidelines for the provision and assessment of nutrition support therapy in the adult critically ill patient. These guidelines are widely used and cited, and many practitioners have been anxiously awaiting the update of 2009 guidelines. So joining me today is Dr. Mary McCarthy. She's one of the members of the Critical Care Guidelines Task Force and lead author of the paper, Recent Critical Care Nutrition Trials and the Revised Guidelines, Do They Reconcile?, which is published in the April 2016 NCP issue. Dr. McCarthy is a senior nurse scientist for the Center for Nursing Science and Clinical Inquiry at Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington. She's worked on nutrition support teams for over 20 years, and her research focuses energy expenditure in the critically ill. So thank you, Dr. McCarthy, for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So before we start a discussion, I'd like to ask Dr. McCarthy if you have any disclosures on this topic that you'd like to share. I don't think I have any to share other than, as you mentioned, I was on the guidelines committee and therefore have this inside knowledge working towards writing this paper. Thank you, Mary. So as we start our conversation about this, could you please give our readers some background information on the purpose of clinical guidelines and how these specific guidelines have evolved? Of course. So guidelines offer basic recommendations that are supported by a review and analysis of current literature, other national guidelines, and a blend of expert opinion and clinical practicality. And because guidelines are rooted in evidence, they must be updated about every three to five years to reflect new research that may lead to changes in practice. What we did differently this time that directly benefits the nutrition support clinician is that we partnered with the Canadian Clinical Guidelines Group to work from a common database of randomized controlled trials. We had access to their reviews from older studies, and our committee performed all the reviews of newer randomized controlled trials and observation trials from about 2008 to December of 2013, which then the Canadian group reviewed themselves to provide their own recommendations for their community. The purpose of guidelines is to offer evidence-based and experience-based recommendations that balance potential benefits to be obtained from implementing a specific therapy against certain risks inherent in that therapy. And these guidelines for nutrition support are no different. We presented as strong a case for early nutrition support as possible while also describing clinical circumstances that warrant caution to prevent harm. So I do want to point out to our audience that these new guidelines are intended for the adult critically ill patient expected to require greater than two to three days in the medical or surgical ICU. But we did expand this document to include subsets of patients who were not addressed in our previous guidelines of 2009. We have patient populations including those with organ failure, acute pancreatitis, surgical subsets, sepsis, chronically critically ill, and the obese critically ill patient. So one of the things that your paper and NCP, or really the focus of your paper, addresses the fact that two years have passed between the predetermined date 
that studies could be considered in the development of the guidelines and the date when the guidelines were actually released. So can you kind of explain for our readers and our listeners some of the controversy surrounding this cutoff date and specifically why there was a deadline and why new studies were not considered as the guidelines were being developed? Of course. So the committee was aware of some of these studies being revealed, the results being revealed in the time frame since our cutoff of December 2013. And we knew that publications were forthcoming, but these data were not included in our guidelines simply because we needed to establish that common end date for our search review. You know, we couldn't take it right up until the date of publication. We knew that the review process by at least two journals was going to take perhaps as long as a year. And we also knew that adding a new or landmark study after our cutoff could have introduced bias, which unless a formalized search was conducted for all sections of the manuscript, you know, that would not have been an approach we wanted to incorporate into these guidelines. In your paper in NCP, you outline in detail several of the studies that have been released in the intervening time between that predetermined cutoff date for inclusion of studies and the release of the guidelines. And I really encourage our listeners to go back and read through that because you did a, a very nice job of explaining those. But just briefly, can you summarize for our listeners today how many studies were released between 2013 and now that maybe could or would have been considered in the guidelines? Sure. Our committee agrees that results from about six trials with appropriate rigor in their methodology would have been considered for inclusion in our guidelines. And that's not to say that they would have provided a high level of evidence or that they would have changed our current recommendations. They would have been reviewed by at least two committee members, as all papers were, and then added to forest plots for an appropriate level of recommendation. And it's actually pretty rare that one additional trial will change the signal in that forest plot that ultimately changes the recommendation. And I wanted to point out that we did hear from Dr. Todd Rice at Clinical Nutrition Week about some of these more recent papers since the cutoff of our guidelines. And he made it very clear that um, the results of these large trials published after that date are largely consistent with our new recommendations. I think you've kind of already addressed this, but do you have anything to add on if the task force felt that why one study or one group of study may have changed the guidelines or, or not changed the guidelines? When we talk about the studies that have been released since 2013, I would say that we did not feel there were any substantial outcomes, significant outcomes, that would drive a change in our recommendations or a change in practice at the bedside at this time. One of the things that we noticed is that there was a period of about six years from the last set of guidelines until now, and of course everyone's really excited to see the new guidelines out. How has the task force decided that they're going to update the guidelines going forward? Will we expect updates more regularly, or is it going to be, again, at certain specific set intervals? We do believe that we have a professional imperative to sort of abide by the governing bodies and 
really our obligation to our fellow clinicians that we will update these guidelines on a regular basis. The governing bodies would like to see this every three to five years. So I think folks can be looking to see something again by around 2018. But our group actually joked that if that's the case, we should get started now. Well, thank you, Dr. McCarthy. Again, I think most practitioners are very excited to see these clinical guidelines in print and really appreciate all the time that you and the other task force members took to bring this to us and to help our practice and to to really help our patient care. So before we close today, are there any other comments that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, Jeanette, I would just like to reiterate that this population of ICU patients are a very heterogeneous and complex group, and every clinical presentation is going to be different. The therapies and recommendations we've made must be tailored for the individual, and they must be monitored for effectiveness and the outcomes, which are crucial. We need clinicians to determine how best to incorporate the evidence into their institution's culture. And they should use these guidelines to develop protocols for, you know, the best practices and and our recommendations and then share their experience, publish their results. We need more work done in the area of uh, research and nutrition support. You know, I wish we could develop a research agenda for our country, for this community, to guide researchers to help us address the existing gaps in our knowledge related to nutrition support. Well, thank you, Dr. McCarthy, for sharing your insight with our listeners. I invite our listeners and our readers to find out more about this topic and many other nutrition support topics in the April 2016 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. 